When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 336, with a friend like Mussolini. Now that Mussolini had declared war on Malta, and in return, Churchill had sworn to defend it, the rest would be decided over the skies of the Mediterranean island. For Rome to own the skies meant they could send in troops. For the Allies to retain control overhead meant an invasion would suffer much in the process. Thus, the challenge had been laid down and accepted. As we have seen, Churchill wanted reinforcements sent to Malta ASAP, but would that soon be soon enough? During the first 29 days of Italy coming into the war, Malta had been bombed 72 times. Clearly, the Maltese would suffer for their defiance. As for the Allied pilots, they were doing what they could with what they had. Still, not too many deaths early on meant the men would gather experience, a key ingredient to staying cool while the bullets flew close by. On a more mundane level, as many people had left the coastline, Governor Dobby was grateful that many had done so voluntarily, there was now the question of all the pet dogs left behind with no one to care for them, and it would be weeks before many residents returned to their homes, soldiers were sent out to shoot them. Thus, they would not die more slowly due to starvation. Next, Dobby turned his attention to the capital, Valletta, as it was now practically a ghost town. Still, capitalism demanded that the rent be paid by the various owners, which hardly seemed fair to those renting apartments and those away from their shops, as they were trying to stay alive by being closer to the center of the island. Thus, Dobby was prevailed upon and agreed to lower the amounts due each month, provided that the shop owners came to the capital and opened up at least three days a week. This seemed fair to all, and it was accepted. Life continued, as it were, on a part-time basis. Just days before Churchill ordered Malta resupplied with whatever was possible at the moment, this was on July 12th, a few hurricane fighters had arrived. George Burgess was sitting in one of them during his watch, waiting for the signal to take off, which came early into his shift. Over his radio transmitter came the words, Scramble, scramble, scramble. Scramble he did, and appreciated the speed that was now at his beck and call. Soon, another signal reached Burgess, 
Quote, Bandits, 3 plus, 10 miles north, angles 15, which translated to three enemy aircraft had been spotted, 10 miles from St. Paul's Bay, north of the island, at about 15,000 feet. Zooming up and on, Burgess soon spotted one bomber, protected by two Fiat biplanes, the latter two being the equivalent of the Gladiator Burgess had recently been flying. Now, using his superior speed, Burgess was soon behind the attackers, and he was not alone. Within minutes, Burgess took out the bomber while a fellow pilot destroyed one of the escorts. The last one dove, turned, and headed back north. But to hear the Italian radio report the incident later that day, the bomber was attacked by two Spitfires. However, one of them was shot down. Not even close, the British pilots retorted. Not that everything went the defender's way. Just a few days later, July 16th, Malta Fighter Flight lost its first pilot in combat, Flight Lieutenant Peter Keeble. At 9 a.m., Keeble in a hurricane and Pilot Officer McAdam in a gladiator took off on a patrol. Ten minutes later, both pilots were informed that an enemy formation was incoming from the north. Seconds later, gunfire from the hurricane could be heard over the radio. Soon, the hurricane was heading straight down. Right behind it was an Italian Fiat CR-42 biplane. Disappearing from the view of those to the northeast of Luca Airfield, thus on the island's southeast corner, an explosion was heard. RAF headquarters ordered both British planes to return to base. McAdam and his gladiator landed, but not Keeble. After some searching, Keeble was found dead, laying near his burning hurricane, near Marsaskala. But the story doesn't end there. Not far away from the burning hurricane was a CR-42 biplane, badly damaged, but its pilot was still alive. The Italian pilot was rushed to the hospital, but never gained consciousness, and then died. Intelligence officers went through his clothes, possessions, and what was left of his plane. Many details were found, but not the man's name. So, with nothing to lose, an intelligence officer called his counterpart in Italy. Giving the details over, Rome ascertained that the dead pilot was Soto Tenete Mario Benedetti, age 24, the son of the commissioner of police in Genoa. Benedetti was buried with full military honors. A witness on the ground near where both planes crashed saw the entire episode. They went at each other, all guns blazing. Keeble and his plane were hit. He was probably dead before he hit the ground, and his plane then dove. Benedetti's plane was damaged as well, and he either dived to finish off Keeble or was out of control himself. Keeble was the first pilot to die in combat and was the inspiration of the Malta government passing a resolution thanking the Navy, Army, and Royal Air Force for the island's defense. Many more pilots would perish in this war over Malta. Not all of them would get a grave. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, You think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great 
uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Two weeks later, on July 31st, a gladiator burst into flames during its own dogfight. The pilot was rescued, but badly burned, as it was summer and the pilot's had gotten rid of their flight suits for shorts and a shirt. He would be in the hospital for months, clearly out of the fight. By the end of July, Malta fighter flight could claim 12 enemy planes destroyed. However, the island's defense air force was down to one hurricane and two gladiators. Attrition was not the way to hold on to the island. But Churchill was as good as his word, for on July 31st, the carrier HMS Argus entered the Mediterranean. On board her were 12 hurricanes that had orders to take off from Malta just as soon as those planes were within range of the island. Two days later, August 2nd, the 12 hurricanes landed at Luca Airfield, located two miles due south of the sporting fields of Marsa, at the southern end of the Grand Harbor. Now, the bad news. Those pilots had been helping out in engaging German pilots in what would be called the Battle of Britain. But now they were informed that they were being voluntold to be the latest addition to Malta fighter flight. The men cursed aloud as their entire trip had been top secret, so they had not brought anything personal with them, thinking they would be flown back to the Argus and taken home. Maybe, but not for the foreseeable future. And when they compared their new digs to what they had back home during the Battle of Britain, they realized how good they had had it. Once the dust settled, generated by the pilot's cursing and indignation, Air Commodore Maynard was pleased to see that he, finally, had enough men and planes to make a proper squadron. In all, he now had 15 planes and 18 pilots. Malta Fighter Flight was based at Luca Airfield and on August 16th, 261 Squadron was formed. Even better, after Admiral Cunningham's aggressive Battle of Calabria covered last time, the Italian air raids over Malta, though still regular, had lessened. Malta had come through its weakest point in this war so far. But securing the island's immediate safety was only the beginning, considering the wider war. En route to Admiral Cunningham was the carrier HMS Illustrious, the battleship Valiant, and two anti-aircraft cruisers, Coventry and Calcutta. Even better, Illustrious and Valiant both had RDF, or radar, 
placing another weapon in the aggressive admiral's hand. Thus, his AA crews did not have to spend all of their time at station and were able to relax their nerves and muscles. The way things worked out, Malta received the warships from the west, while from the east, a tanker and two merchant ships also pulled into the Grand Harbor. The civilian ships had come from the east as they had sailed around the Cape of Good Hope of South Africa, as First Sea Lord Dudley Pound did not trust their safety going through the western Mediterranean. From there, the supply ships were sent up the Suez Canal and then onto Malta, but were first attacked by Italian bombers just south of Crete. Now added to the island's arsenal were 40,000 tons of guns, armor, and ammunition. But Admiral Cunningham was about to find out, having more from London, Churchill expected him to use it, as in, right now. For, as the Battle of Britain was having a good day for the British on September 8th, the Prime Minister expected the Admiral to do the same and told him why. Yes, Churchill said, the Italians are holding back, but it was only a matter of time before Hitler or his minions got their hands on the Italian armed forces and they would use their numbers under German leadership to engage the Allies' Mediterranean forces. Strike now before that happens. And to help Cunningham, Rear Admiral Arthur Leicester was sent to the Mediterranean to command the fleet air arm and he would be based on the carriers. Together, he and Cunningham began to work on a bold plan to inflict damage on the Italian fleet to hopefully not only keep their activities curtailed, but also to curtail the messages coming from Churchill, screaming for action. In that light, added to Cunningham's offensive weapons, was a photographic reconnaissance flight of three American twin-engine Glen Martin Marylands that flew directly from southern England. The problem was, spare parts for these planes or figuring out how to repair them as the RAF mechanics had never worked on one before. Still, as long as one of these three light bombers, each having four machine guns in their wings and two twin manually operated guns in the turret and rear ventral were operable, Cunningham and his staff would get much needed information to finally go over on the offensive. Combining intelligence gathering along with the ability to sink enemy vessels, Cunningham also wanted more submarines. Never mind that the British subs were old, clumsy, and loud enough to give away their own locations. After the first week of the war, he was down to four and wanted more. Also, the British, for whatever reason, were still using their subs against the Italians within the pre-war guidelines like merchantmen vessels, had to be given a warning before being fired upon, and the sub-crew then had to take responsibility for the victim's safety. Cunningham wanted more subs and no restrictions, like the Italians were currently having. And Churchill agreed, for he saw the value of sinking enemy vessels on their way from the Italian mainland to the North African coast, as Marshal Graziani was still trying to pierce deeper into Egypt. And there sat Malta, right in the way of all that Italian convoy system shipping. If a submarine flotilla could be based there, the Italian marshal might find himself with less and less material and men. As mentioned, 
Churchill also wanted an increased sub-presence in the Mediterranean. So it would be, but it would take time. The Battle of Britain was raging, and the majority of effort and focus was there. Still, Commander George Simpson was picked to head up this new flotilla. He had been operating in subs since 1921, and if his nickname Shrimp could be ignored, he was actually thick and broad of shoulder, it would be his job to lick his men into shape and make them aggressive, despite their older equipment. But just Cunningham was doing above the waves. As for the current sub-commander, Lieutenant Commander R.G. Pop Giddings, he was doing all he could with what he had to transform the island's floating base, a place to repair and refuel only, into a proper base on Monoel Island, also known as Bishop's Island. Such was Malta's place in London's sphere before Churchill had started lighting fires under various backsides that Pop had been a part-time officer and a part-time wine sales merchant for a Mediterranean-based company. But that was changing fast. Manoel Island is in the Marksakzekt Harbor on the left side of the finger of land or peninsula that holds Valletta's central strip of land. On the island was a quarantine hospital that used to minister to bubonic plague victims. Now it would contribute to the war effort. Yet in between being a hospital and now a sub-base, the island had served as a penitentiary. And when Commander Shrimp showed up, he was allowed to use the structure there, but he had to promise not to remove any of the names etched into the limestone walls. One name, carved in 1811, was Lord Byron's, as he had been a guest there. Another option that Admiral Cunningham and the sub-commander Shrimp were hoping to receive, before the year was out, was a new class of sub. The Unity, or U-class sub, just built by Vickers Armstrong, and it was being tested. It was smaller and quieter than the current subs, and was to have been to help ships develop their sub-detection skills. But as they were relatively cheaper to build, and faster, Cunningham and Shrimp were hoping... Churchill would continue to stay diligent and get those subs to them after their trials. The Maltese had settled themselves into an attitude of toughing it out after the first waves of fear and panic, but those feelings intensified and renewed on September 5th, when five Junkers Ju-87 dive bombers appeared over the island. Yes, they were being flown by Italians, but they were no longer staying at 12,000 feet. Their target that day was Califrana, on the island's southeast corner, whose port facilities were damaged. Seven days later, September 12th, the Junkers were back, this time hitting Halfar Airfield, just a few miles west of Califrana. And though the pilots had these terrifying planes, there is something to be said for experience. After the Italians dropped their bombs, the JUs swung back around to strafe the airfield. A solid move, if all defenders still had their heads down and not looking for planes, or too frightened to use their AA guns, which wasn't the case. As the German-made planes came in low, the gunners of the Royal Malta Artillery's 22nd Light AA battery blasted away, downing one of the bombers. 
Through the random but reduced bombings, Governor Dombey and the Maltese people worked together to make life bearable. First, the British leader made sure that all people were within range of the rediffusion system. Think local radio station. Some people had enough money to have one in their homes, but most did not. Dombey worked with the locals so that all would know when a raid was approaching. The physical box of this communication system had just one switch with two settings, A or B. One had the information coming out in English, the other in Maltese. That was for the news and bulletins, obviously. Other times, music from the BBC came through on either setting to entertain and hopefully distract the local populace. Meanwhile, infantry units like the Royal West Kents spent their days either cleaning away bomb damage, improving defensive positions, weapons training, or, if need be, bicycle lessons, as that was the main way to get around the island. The soldiers were also told of how Germans fight in case they should reach the island. The lessons focused on the Germans' use of distractions or loud noise to confuse their opponent and to keep everyone on the up-and-up who was in uniform, inspections of all kinds were carried out each and every Sunday. Over the months, the bombings did not increase, so the men were given more time off. But being on an island, in the middle of a sea, surrounded by enemies, there weren't too many places to go. One place, actually, and that was the capital, Valletta. There all kinds of entertainment could be had for the right price. Life, as they say, goes on. By the time fall arrived, it was clear that Germany had not met the requirements for a landing across the Channel, namely taking control of the skies. Thus, the home island was safe for another six months or so, relatively speaking. And during that time, Malta was growing stronger, still a long ways away from being strong enough to deflect a full-on attack or invasion. And that was Churchill's fear. In October, a few twin-engine Wellington bombers arrived, thus lengthening Air Commodore Maynard's reach. This required 261 Squadron, of which George Burgess was a part, to move to Takali, roughly in the center of the island, to let the bombers have Luka with its longer airfields. And then the Mediterranean world altered, not for the better, on October 28th, when Mussolini invaded Greece. Hitler had already been sending Il Duce messages along the lines of, is this wise, hoping to dissuade the Italian leader. At the moment, Hitler was talking to Franco, the leader of nationalist Spain, hoping to entice the Spaniard to enter the war on the Axis side. Franco told de Fuhrer after a nine-hour meeting that now was not the right time for Spain. But to his staff, he said, I would rather have three or four teeth yanked out than go through such an interview again. Hitler probably felt the same way, as he was not used to having to ask for anything, much less repeatedly. And that's when, while on his train ride back to Berlin, that he was told that Mussolini his partner, had invaded Greece. Hitler, being defied twice in one day, screamed out, How can he do such a thing? This is downright madness. If he wanted to pick a fight with poor little Greece, why didn't he attack Malta or Crete? 
it would at least make some sense in the context of war with Britain in the Mediterranean. For Hitler, it was all about context, his wider context, for setting up his next victim. When the Germans' train pulled into Florence on the morning of October 28th, he was met by Mussolini and a 60-man band. Giving the signal, the band started playing the Italian Royal March, but it then got a look from Il Duce and so switched to the German national anthem. When Hitler opened the window of his train, Mussolini bellowed, Fuhrer, we are on the march. Victorious Italian troops crossed the Greco-Albanian border at dawn. And just like that, Mussolini's ego, his desire to compete with Hitler, had destabilized the entire region. From there, Germany was receiving oil, aluminum, lead, copper, chrome, and tin. Further, Hitler's timetable of keeping the peace in that area for another year was also disrupted, which is why he proposed a tripartite pact with Romania, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia, the three countries touching Greece. And now it was so much confetti in the wind. Because of this disturbance, Hitler guessed that, one, he would have to bail Mussolini out in Greece, he would be right about this, but also he would have to safeguard the area from attack by the British, as they were, in the Mediterranean, thus reducing his number of troops for next year's attack on Soviet Russia, which left Hitler with only one option. He would have to get involved in the Mediterranean and with the British. He had been relatively happy to let them play in their pond and engage with the Italians in North Africa, while he wiped out Russia, Britain's one last main ally, or so he thought. But now all that had changed. Churchill's fear was coming true. Which is why he pressured Cunningham to hit the Italians in their own waters, thus reducing their ability to launch their own offensive action. And it's not like Cunningham was shy in such matters, but he had been rather busy before Italy invaded Greece. In late September, his ships had escorted the 2,000 additional troops to Malta, and then shielded another convoy in early October. Convoy MB6 was escorted from Alexandria to Malta. Traveling to the Suez Canal, the four cargo ships had been escorted by two anti-aircraft cruisers and four destroyers. But once in the Mediterranean, the bulk of Cunningham's fleet escorted the lot of them to Malta. Fortunately, foul weather prevented a clash of vessels. After this, the light cruiser HMS Ajax was sent out on a scouting mission. During the last part of the voyage of that British convoy, the Italian commander, Admiral Inigo Campioni, had overcommitted his destroyers to the west of Malta, thinking that convoy was bound for Gibraltar. Realizing his mistake, the other part of his force, four destroyers and three torpedo boats, well, they were on their own. At 1.37 a.m., October 12th, the Ajax was spotted by one of those three torpedo boats at about 19,600 yards away. A minute later, the three torpedo boats were closing in on the British light cruiser, who was unaware of the enemy's presence. Now only 1,900 yards away, one torpedo boat fired two torpedoes. 
they missed, but even before the deadly fish missed their target, the three torpedo boats were firing their 3.9-inch or 100-millimeter guns. Two shots scored hits, on the bridge and a third below the waterline. It was a solid opening move for the Italians. Now aware that it was under attack, the crew of the Ajax spotted the torpedo boat aerial, took aim, and fired, and kept firing. Several rounds hit the aerial, with her going under 20 minutes later. Next, another torpedo boat fired a torpedo, but this gave away its location, so she came under fire. One of the first rounds from the Ajax caused a fire on the Italian ship, but even then, the light cruiser got in closer and raked the vessel with its machine gun. The Arione was doomed. The last torpedo boat, the Alcione, still undamaged, moved away at 2.03 a.m. Now not under attack itself, the Ajax resumed its eastward course at 2.15 a.m. This exchange, however, had gotten the attention of several Italian destroyers to the south. Captain Carlo Margattini wanted to bring to bear all five of his destroyers, but three of them did not receive his radio message, so continued on to the northwest. This left Margattini's destroyer and another to close in on the Ajax. And though having sustained some damage, her fire-controlled radar picked up the two approaching enemy destroyers. The Aviere was about to launch a torpedo strike when the Ajax loosed a broadside attack, inflicting significant damage on her. Thus, she turned south to escape. This gave the other ship, the Artigliere, enough time to fire off a torpedo and four rounds from its 120mm or 4.7-inch guns. As they were only 2,800 yards away, the Ajax was hit by the shells, damaging her secondary gun turrets, the port whaler, a smaller vessel used for rescue or abandoning ship, and finally, her radar. In return, the Atigliere was also hit and damaged to the point that it turned away to make good its escape. A third destroyer, seeing the flashes, returned to the scene, but then seeing the Ajax decided not to engage, and it went south to look for the damaged ship. The Ajax, during this exchange, had lost 13 crewmen, with another 22 wounded, and it would require a month of repairs to be serviceable again. While still dark, the Nara found the Atigliere and took her in tow, but upon first light, both were found by the cruiser HMS York. Focusing on the undamaged Nara first, she undid the lines and dashed away. The limping Artigliere was finished off with a single torpedo from the York. The survivors were rescued by the Italian Navy the next day. Getting back to how busy Admiral Cunningham's Mediterranean command was, that night's action was a typical Tuesday for the fleet. Actually, it was a Saturday. But while that had been going on, the two carriers, Eagle and Illustrious, had sent off their swordfish planes to bomb Leros, an island just off the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. And rounding out Cunningham's headaches, most nights, Italian subs came out to hunt, and they damaged or sank his ships, as their numbers gave them that advantage. 
So it was Cunningham who wanted to scream at the Prime Minister. First, you don't know what I'm dealing with here, and second, what do you think I'm doing? Attacks that British men and British equipment can walk away from? That takes planning, or something along those lines. In truth, Cunningham and Rear Admiral Arthur Lester of the Fleet Air Arm were working overtime to finish off an attack plan, but as such things go, several items had to line up first. The reconnaissance information, which had to be updated regularly, the right equipment in the right place, and working properly, and finally, the moon, or rather, its light. Cunningham had been hoping to execute his plan during the night of October 21st, the anniversary of Admiral Nelson's victory at Trafalgar. But then a fire broke out in one of Illustrious's hangars, so now another cycle had to be waited on, which pushed the attack back to November 11th. It was beyond Cunningham's control, which he, but more importantly Churchill, barely tolerated and half-pretended not to comprehend. Still, something Churchillian, Cunningham-ian, and Nelsonian would take place soon if the Germans did not interfere. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, on the next episode, I will uh, thank the latest members and those that have donated or have written me detailed information. Uh, Again, I appreciate it very much. Speaking of which, you can at any time, obviously, um, go to the website and make a donation or become a member. Uh, For $5 a month, you get two extra episodes, and I think there's 186 right now, something like that. I'm of various subjects, uh, something like that. So, again, if you ever wanted to support the show, it would be greatly appreciated. And um, then we'll just keep on with the um, Malta story, which then leads to North Africa and um, Tobruk. And, of course, then we'll go back into Russia and try to catch everything up. And we'll go from there. So as always, thank you very much for listening. Take care, everyone.